This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. As we prepare to share the Lord's Supper, I want to ask you, if you will, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. And I pray this morning that as we speak briefly about verses 5 through 13, our hearts will be drawn to the glory of God's grace that has brought us into fellowship with Him. I'll start reading in verse 5 of chapter 8 in the Gospel of Matthew and finish at verse 13. And when He, that is Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to Him, appealing to Him, Lord, My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west. And recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. May God be glorified in the reading and in the hearing of his word this morning. My attention is drawn to verse 11. When Jesus, in responding to the centurion's faith, says to his followers, Many will come from east and west recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's an idea of table that draws my attention this morning because obviously we come to the Lord's Supper, which is placed upon the communion table. Think about the meaning of table. It carries with it a lot of imagery, meaning. I remember in some of my pastoral studies in seminary, one of the very practical tidbits that a professor gave is that when you visit a home, if you can make your way into the kitchen around the table, people will relax a little bit more. Because the table speaks of fellowship, satisfaction, laughter, joy. Together around the table means that you're home. 
You can find what you're looking for. The question comes, who can gather at the Lord's table? Some tables are exclusive. You think back historically in legend of King Arthur, Camelot was known for its round table, but not everyone could come up to the table and sit. It was reserved for the knights who had proved their courage and valor, knights like Lancelot, Gwain, and Galahad. Another form of a table is a, a desk, which made me think of the resolute desk which was given to President Rutherford, Rutherford B. Hayes by Queen Victoria. Not everyone can sit there. So who can come to the Lord's table? See, the kingdom has a table. This is imagery that is built upon the Old Testament. The prophets of old spoke about the coming table in which we would find all that we are looking for. I would point out just one prophecy from the book of Isaiah chapter 25 where Isaiah said, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. It's saying this table on this mountain of God, the Lord of all the armies is preparing a meal that will be rich and satisfactory, and you don't have to worry about calories. He goes on to talk about this. And he that is God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all the nations. So on this mountain where this table is, a change is going to be brought about. So what is this veil that's spread over all the peoples? This covering that is over all the nations? He will swallow up death forever. Death that separates brings pain and hurt, even regret. Gone! No more to, to bring pain. And at that moment, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. So you see, this table is one of life, of satisfaction, of peace, of joy, of the things that we hunger for in life. So this question of who can come to the table is no, no small question. Matthew 11, Jesus is approached by a centurion. That would be a captain in modern day army. He oversaw a group of a hundred or so soldiers... He was one that would have looked, been looked down upon by the people of Capernaum. So even though it was a Gentile-filled area, there were a lot of Jews. And how do a people feel toward an army that's occupying their land? But this soldier comes to Jesus with a question. And in his question, in the attitude he has with approaching Jesus, we begin to understand the answer to the question of who can come to the kingdom's table. And the answer is one that surprises us. You see, in our minds, we, I think without even saying it, we begin to think, well, who can be saved? People like me and you. And by that I mean we tend to think people that look like us. From our same background. 
People that are, are, are basically, we think, good and have it together, we tend to think those are the ones that can be saved. Those are the ones that can have a place at the table. And Jesus turns that thinking upside down. He gives us clarity. Who can come to the table? Those who have faith in Jesus. When you look at verse 10, Jesus marvels. Now, you think about this for a moment. Jesus, being God in the incarnate, marvels. He's in astonishment at something. Jesus, who holds the universe together, is amazed at something. Jesus, who was there at creation when God spoke the stars into space, is astonished at something. Jesus, who was there when God carved the depths of the oceans out with his finger and filled them with fish bigger than this room, Jesus is amazed. If he's amazed, we need to take notice. What's shocking to Jesus? Look at verse 10. Faith. I've not seen such faith in all of Israel. Now understand, he's using the word Israel to represent the Jews who would have known, supposed to, to know Yahweh, supposed to know the law, supposed to be the ones who model faith. He's saying, among all the people who are supposed to know me, I've not seen faith like this. He holds this centurion up as a model of saving faith. Because notice what he's saying. This one has such faith, and he's a model of those from east to west. In other words, those throughout the whole world who will come and recline at table. This begs the question, what is saving faith? Is saving faith simply having knowledge? Knowing the facts of the gospel? can tell you according to the scripture even the demons know the facts so is saving faith just knowledge no is it just accepting and what i mean by that we willing to say even i i, I trust these facts i believe them well, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he accepted the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, but yet the rich young ruler went away. What is saving faith? Saving faith is born out of a sense of hopelessness that says, Lord, you are my only hope and I give everything to you. All my failures, all my struggles, because Lord, without you, I have no hope of salvation. Saving faith is born of desperation. It's like the two blind men that Jesus encountered when he was walking into Jericho. Men who could not see anything but heard that Jesus was coming and they had heard of his power. And what did they do? Son of David, have mercy on us. Mercy. Give us mercy, O oh Lord. Give us mercy. And when the disciples tried to quiet them down, they cried out all the louder because here was their only hope. Have mercy on us, O oh Lord. And God is merciful. When we cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, He responds. And such faith is always coupled with humility. Humility. 
Verses 8 and 9, the centurion replied to Jesus when Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house and heal them. The centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You say the word and he'll be healed. That's humility and recognizing the authority of Jesus. The centurion says, I'm a man, I understand authority. I know what it is to give orders and have those orders obeyed. But I want you to think for just a moment about the depth of what this man is saying. He's not saying, Jesus, if you send some of your disciples, they'll go. He is saying, I recognize that you, Jesus, have authority over sickness. Who has authority over disease? Who has authority over death? This is the the centurion humbling himself saying, I cannot do this. I'm not worthy. But Lord, I'm humble enough to know that if you just say the word, he'll be healed. It is recognizing that our need for the Lord is so great. We must come to him in humility to say, Lord, I'm not worthy, but you are. And the beautiful thing is that when Jesus responds to this faith, he shows us in verse 11, many are going to come from east to west. In other words, the invitation is extended everywhere. East to west, north, south. Many are going to come. And then comes the warning in verse 12. You see, Jesus has just said in verse 11, the Gentiles, people who are not Jewish, are going to be coming into the kingdom And then he makes this phrase, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who are the sons of the kingdom? As I wrestled with understanding this passage, I really think Jesus is speaking tongue in cheek here. A little bit of sarcasm. Because to the disciples who hear this, Because notice, that's who he's speaking to. The sons of the kingdom were the Jewish people. The religious leaders. Those whom everybody would look at and assume. They're in the kingdom. And I think Jesus is saying these sons of the kingdom who think they are in by virtue of their lineage by virtue of their law-keeping, by virtue of what they think they can do, they'll be cast out. It's not that they couldn't be saved. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and I believe Nicodemus came to saving faith, but it's that they were so caught up in their own self-righteousness. They had neither faith nor humility. In Jesus. And the picture here is that of hell. Thrown into outer darkness. Far away from the light. It's a warning for us not to rest on our own righteousness. Not to think that because we grew up in church. We're we're in the kingdom. We're at the table. But it's a reminder. We need a savior. Jesus is that Savior. Faith and humility. There's an old song by the, a group from the 50s, maybe the 60s, called The Impressions. People get ready because there's a train that's coming. 
Faith is the ticket. You just get on board. Faith. I want to ask you this morning to look in your heart. Bow your heads with me, if you will. We've already had a few moments of preparation, so this morning I just want to ask you, if you will, just to refocus upon the Lord. To examine your heart, allowing the Spirit to speak within you. Have you come to that place of acknowledging your need for Christ? As I said, if you have never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, it would be my privilege to talk with you following this service today. Believers, be reminded today that your salvation is not based upon your works, but upon His grace. It's not based upon what you can do, but what He has done. And rejoice in that. You are forgiven You can come to the table, and even now as we await that day when we gather on the mountain Isaiah prophesied about, we get a foretaste of that. Just a little bit of a taste. Let that encourage you. Father, may this time be glorifying for you. As we thank you for what you have done. Let your grace and your mercy wash over us anew. Cleanse us, O Lord, for we rejoice in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. In his name, amen.